Good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Veenstra. I was privileged to be here last week and uh, privileged to be here again this week. I'm going to read with you from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 23. Last week we looked at the story of Pilate's wife, one of the women that met Jesus on the way to the cross and the impact that uh, her words had on Pilate on, and on us. And today we're going to perhaps look at a more obscure group of women, the Daughters of Jerusalem. And we'll read about that from Luke chapter uh, 23, beginning at verse 26. It's also on the screen so you can follow along. As the soldiers led him, that is Jesus, away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was, there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in a word of prayer. 
Father God, thank you for the road that we're on, the road of the cross, the road to Golgotha, the road to Good Friday, but better than that, the road to Easter Sunday and the road to Pentecost and the outpouring of your spirit and the unfinished road which will come when Jesus who ascended returns and gathers us together. Until that day, keep us faithful and strong and focused, doing your will. Help us to learn from your word. And to that end, may the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be found acceptable and pleasing in your sight and encouraging and redemptive to all of us, your people. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to invite you for a moment to do some reflection. You know, Peter already did that with numbers and pictures. You know, inviting us to reflect on the spirit of generosity. And I congratulate you on that. Uh, you know, the generosity that you have shown. It, it, it shows a little bit, well, more than a little bit, it shows a sense of priority that you have, that you want to put love into expression. But I want to ask you today, what is your priority going forward? All of us have priorities. All of us have things that rise to the surface that are important to us going to our job, doing a good job, paying our taxes, paying our bills, providing good and healthy nutrition to our children, providing a good education, planning for the future, making sure that things are in place. All of us have priorities. I want to ask you, ask myself, to reflect on what is one of the priorities for each and every day. And to get to that, I would like to look for a little while to the story about Jesus on the way to the cross. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent. We have done some reflection already, and there'll be more reflection going forward until we get to Easter Sunday, and then beyond that to Pentecost and Ascension, and looking forward also to the return of Jesus. What is your priority? Jesus, in this moment as we meet him, has been beaten, bloodied, betrayed, spit upon, deserted. He is so weak that he himself cannot carry the crossbeam as a criminal would normally be required to do in that day to the place of execution. And so Simon of Cyrene is recruited, no doubt against his will. Cyrene is in modern-day Tripoli, so he's from northern Africa. But if you read in the uh, book of Acts, there is the synagogue of the free men in Jerusalem, which is also part of a, a Cyrenese community. And so he was part, no doubt, of that community, and he was coming, no doubt, into Jerusalem from the country because it was Passover. And faithful Jews would do that. They would come to celebrate Passover. And now he gets recruited, and we learn later on that he uh, has two sons, Alexander and Rufus, and they minister to the church in Rome. And so you, you get this sense of covenant connectiveness here. 
And as he carries the crossbeam of the cross behind Jesus, people are mocking and jeering him. They do not do that just simply at Golgotha, where the leaders mock him, and the soldiers mock him, and one of the criminals mock him, but others mock him. But there is a group of people who do not join in the jeering. They do not join in the, the hatred. They do not join in the desire to see Jesus suffer more. They wail for Jesus and they lament. And Jesus turns and he speaks to them. This is really significant. We might just simply read over it, but this is the last public ministry that Jesus carries out until beyond his uh, resurrection. When you read the Gospels, Jesus gathers great crowds of people. That is because he's a person who speaks with authority. He, he, he does astonishing things. He feeds the hungry. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. People gather all around him. And he teaches them. And now he focuses on the women who mourn and wail and lament the daughters of Jerusalem, and he is teaching them. But who are they? Who are the daughters of Jerusalem? If you read in the book Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, there the daughters are referred to in singular, the daughter of Jerusalem, often in the prophets called the daughter of Zion. They are residents of Jerusalem. You might say that they are representatives of the population of Jerusalem, but they are representatives of the women of Jerusalem. And it is fitting to note that in all of the Gospels that we have in the Scriptures, women never are recorded to say anything negative about Jesus. Now that is not to say that some didn't think negatively about him. I think about Herodias uh, and Salome, you know, they, they might have thought negatively about Jesus, but it's not recorded that women speak negatively about Jesus. They are there, they minister to him, they seem to encourage him, and now the women of Jerusalem are lamenting and wailing. That's also part of their role. That was part of their expectation. If you recall the story of Jesus raising the daughter of Jairus, Jairus has come and asked if Jesus would, would heal his daughter, and on the way, because Jesus agreed to do that, a woman's hand sneaks through the crowd and touches the hem of his garment, and she is healed from bleeding for 12 years. And Jesus stops. He says, who touched me? And his disciples sort of mock him a little bit. And they say, come on. You know, there's a crowd of people jostling all around. What do you mean, who touched me? Uh, Jesus said, I said, I felt power leave me. I felt power leave me. And this woman comes and she tells her story. Except Jarius must have been chopping at the bit. My daughter is sick and dying, and this woman is delaying the process. Get out of the road! And Jesus ministers to her. 
And he gets to Jairus' house and there are people moaning and wailing and lamenting. Maybe you have watched Middle Eastern women on the news after a terrorist attack, because funerals happen rather quickly uh, in the Middle East. And, and there are these wails, these heart-wrenching wails that, that rise up. And Jesus turns to these women as he turns to, you know, Jairus' daughter, and, and, you know, he says to the people, don't, don't worry, she's not dead, she's sleeping, and they just mock him too. And then he's, he, he raises her from the dead. Jesus turns to these women who are expressing sympathy. You ever express sympathy? Concern? Empathy? Entered into the suffering and the pain of others? Well, the pictures this morning testify that you do and that you did. You send water filtration devices. You know, this big hunk of machinery, as Peter describes it. And you pour in dirty water and voila, clean water comes out. You, you send soybeans. You can make anything out of soybeans, Peter says. Margarine, now, isn't that exciting, right? Right. And you, you bless people, you sympathize, you empathize with them, you enter into their pain and enter into their suffering and you give so that they can have clean water and nutrition and vitamins and ducklings and ducks and goats and all sorts of other barnyard stock. You care for people. You empathize with people. You sympathize with people and you think that's a good thing. You know, in my ministry over the years, you know, lots of time in funeral homes. And sometimes people come to me uh, at a funeral home and say, Pastor Bill, I've never been in a place like this before. What do I say to people when you walk in line? Ever felt worried about that? You walk in a line and, and you come up to these people who've just lost a, a mother or a grandmother or a husband, a wife or worse than that, a child. I remember at a service in Maple Ridge, uh, you could hear people snickering because a 14-year-old boy had died. And I could hear them snickering and I said, it's all right, go ahead and cry. <laughs> it, it, it's permission giving. When you stand in line and you come along, what do you express? Express condolences. You express sympathy. You, you say, I empathize with you for your loss. And that's a good thing. Because as Nick mentioned in the prayer, loneliness, desertion, is terrible. You go to a person whose husband has died, and now his widow comes home to an empty house. Her kids are all gone. Grandchildren have been there for the funeral. But now she comes to an empty house and has got to make all sorts of decisions about banking, about when do I schedule an oil change for the car? I talked to a widow recently who said, yeah, my husband took care of all of that. I had a clue about how to organize that. Who do I ask? There's this profound sense of loneliness. And people 
are blessed when you enter into their life and into their pain and into their loss and into their sorrow and you sympathize with him and more importantly you empathize with him you enter in and you help with that as background notice what Jesus does he turns and he says I don't want your sympathy daughters of Jerusalem do not weep for me and you think whoa wait a minute this doesn't sound very caring or compassionate or understanding this sounds almost like a rebuke don't weep for me I don't want your sympathy is that what Jesus is doing is he rebuking here I don't think so Jesus is a teacher Jesus wants to as Peter says speak to you guys and he wants to bless you guys by moving you along the road to understanding Viktor Frankl who was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps of the Second World War wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning and he reflected and learned from the the things he had observed in a concentration camp and he he studied those who seemed to survive better than those who did not and he discovered in his observations that those who found meaning in their suffering did better than those who said I don't understand why this is taking place I don't understand why this is taking place I've been so good I have lived such a privileged life and now look at me now look at me you know, there was a lady in Hamilton Ontario whose funeral I was privileged uh, to do and she was a survivor of the Japanese concentration camp and she told me how they worshiped they worshiped by standing between the sheets that they hung up on the lines where the guards couldn't see them and then they recited scripture to each other and that's how they worshiped they found meaning in their situation that's how things unfolded and Jesus says I want you to find meaning and what's going on here I am not suffering simply because the Romans beat me and the, your leaders mock me I am suffering because the human condition brought me here I am suffering because of your sin I am suffering because of your shortcomings do not weep for me weep for yourselves because in all the circumstances that have surrounded this present moment and present situation you are blinded to what is truly happening you are blinded and what does he mean by that because if you go back to uh, Luke chapter 19 and, and there will be some reference to that no doubt in a few weeks time when it's Palm Sunday listen to this description of Luke 
on Palm Sunday, as he, that is Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You are so absorbed in your own life and in what has priority for you that you can't see the gift that God has provided. So what's, what's Jesus' meaning? Well, they had this idea that the Messiah would be a social, military, economic force that would restore Israel to the days of David when they were one of the superpowers of the region, when they had mastery, when they were in charge, when people bowed to them. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. And then this Jesus who could raise the dead. Can you imagine having him as the general of your army? If you died, he'd just simply say, get up and walk and swing your sword all over again. But as Peter so or Nick so eloquently said in the uh, prayer, you know, Jesus says, put away your sword. Put away your sword. Rather, go and share soybeans with people. And medical kits with people. Nutritional boxes with people. Share water filtration sets with people. Bring my kingdom to people so that they are truly blessed and that they can be a blessing. But now it is hidden from your eyes. You can't see it. You can't see it. And you've missed the opportunity. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves because you chose Barabbas. You chose the one who would swing the sword. You chose the one who would, who would bloody the field. You chose the one who would cause children to suffer. And if you want to see all of that stuff unfolded, just watch the news. Just watch the news about what's happening in the Ukraine. Half the children of Ukraine have been displaced in the last month. One-tenth of their population has fled. Their population is larger than that of Canada. Can you imagine one-tenth of our population having gone across the border into the United States? Just imagine that. If you want to see what that's like, just because on the news this morning driving here, you know, there's a civil war. People tend to forget it. But, you know, again, Nick mentioned it. You know, and there's a civil war in Yemen that's been going on for eight years. And four million people haven't just been displaced. They've died. When's the last time you hear about that? And Jesus says, it's hidden from your eyes. That all the need that you have and that you can address. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for your blindness. Because your blindness is going to bring consequences. The day will come when you will say, blessed are the women who have no children. Blessed are the breasts who have never nursed. And you will quote the words of Isaiah, mountains please fall on us and hills. Oh, not Isaiah, Hosea. Mountains please fall on us and hills please cover us. You stop to think about that for a moment in the context of the day when Jesus spoke that. 
One of the greatest curses that Jewish women could experience was that of barrenness, of not being able to have children. You could recall in scripture women who were barren. Just go back to the early part of Luke chapter 1 or 2, chapter 1 I believe, where you get the story of Zechariah in the temple and the angel Gabriel comes to him and says, hey Zechariah, good news, in your old age. And how old would he have been? 60? Can you imagine this now? In your, in your old age, you and Elizabeth were going to have a child. Oh, yippee, when I'm 80, my kid will be 20. Whoa. Would you like that? Ah, how's that to be? Well, I'll give you nine months of silence to think about it, Zachariah. Oh, well, thank you very much. Bye. Oh. And Elizabeth says, when John is born, my disgrace has been removed. And now Jesus says, and now you will say, blessed are the women who never had children, and blessed are the breasts who never nursed. Can you imagine? What's he referring to? Well, it's around 33 AD. 33 years from then, around 66, the Romans will get fed up with the Jews. And they will begin to conduct what Josephus calls the Jewish wars. And they will end in 70 AD. And in 70 AD, 600,000 people will have died because of inter-Jewish conflict and civil war, and Roman oppression. Eventually, that story will end at Masada, which is a, a plateau away from Jerusalem by the Dead Sea. And there at Masada, there will be the last resistance. And Titus, the son of Tiberius, the emperor, who will later become the emperor of Rome, will build a ramp that you can still see in satellite pictures. And the Roman army will go up into Masada. And when they get there, there will be two survivors because the rest have committed suicide. And the nation of Israel Israel comes to a formal end until 1948. And today, where do Jewish soldiers take their pledge of allegiance to the army? On top of Masada. Because Israel ceased to exist for 2,000 years. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And then he closes it with this proverb. If they will do this while the tree is green, imagine what they will do when the tree is dry. If they will do this to a person who is innocent like me, the centurion said, truly this was the Son of God. If they will do this to a person who is innocent, who the green tree is green. Imagine what they will do when the tree is dead. You know, it's spring, and soon you're going to look, if you're not looking at your garden already, and you think about, well, that tree, that would flourish better if I moved it. So you carefully dig it up because it's still alive, and then you move it, and you carefully stake it, and nurture it, and water it, and fertilize it. But if the bush is dead, 
You've got no sympathy. You just yank it out. And then you throw it away. Or burn it, burn it up. Well, that's what the Jews experienced from 66 to 70 AD. Paul Meir, who is a historian at Western Michigan University, has uh, provided a condensed version of Josephus's um, history. And it's regarded as really good history, actually. He gets exaggerating when he talks about uh, numbers, but the history is pretty accurate. And if you want to read about what happened in Jerusalem, I just recommend you take a look at that book. Josephus, one of the uh, early, well, Jewish historians. So what does Jesus want? What is he trying to teach these women? He's not rebuking them. What is he trying to teach them? What should have priority in your life? Not wailing for me. Jesus is not asking for sympathy. He knows why he is going to the cross. He's going to the cross because me. And because of my broken heart and my warped nature. He's going to the cross to set me free. So what does he want from me? Well, remember I talked about Elizabeth. And she had a son who we call John the Baptist. And John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord. And what did John the Baptist do? He preached repentance, forgiveness of sins. He preached to Israel that they had to be baptized for repentance. That's a strange thing. Because they thought themselves children of Abraham. They were on the inside track. They were special. They were privileged. No, says John, your behavior is wrong. You need to change. And when he preached, you can check this out in the Gospel of Luke, when he preached, people came to him and said, what must we do? What must we do? And so he began to articulate. If you have two clothes or two coats, give one to someone who has none. Or if you've got a bunch of extra ducklings, give them to Nicaragua. If you are a tax collector, don't collect any more than what's really owing to you. Don't pad your pockets. Behave yourselves. Be a blessing. If you're a soldier, don't pull out your sword so that you can oppress and afflict and you can feel good and powerful about yourself and make things a little easier for yourself. No, pursue justice. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to walk love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What shall we do? And then run ahead to post-Pentecost. Peter, who has deserted Jesus, standing far off now, has denied him. Peter, on the outpouring of the Spirit, articulates the story of redemption. And the question is asked by the people of Israel who listen to him and by the Jews who have gathered from all places of the world, including, interestingly enough, Cyrene. What shall we do? They ask him. And he says, repent. Repent, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call to him. Well, what does repentance mean? 
Lord's Day 33, question and answer 89, or 88, 89, and 90 of the Heidelberg Catechisms ask that question. What is the meaning of repentance? And this is the answer, a dying away of the old and a coming to life of the new. Repentance involves transformation. It involves change. So let me just think for a moment and try to act this out. Repentance means that you're walking in a certain direction. This is the way you're going and suddenly you are confronted by Jesus and by, with the cross and the reason for the cross and by the Holy Spirit and you are convicted in your heart and your mind about what has happened. And now you turn about. It's called being born again. And now you walk in a different path, heading toward a different goal. Repentance involves a change or dying away of the old self and a coming to life of the new self. That's what in repentance involves. But repentance is a process. So up to here, and now I turn, and as I turn, I begin to meet people along the way. Jesus was not alone when he went to the cross. There were two, at least two people with him sharing a similar fate. One mocks him and says, it's all about me, you know, if, if you are the Messiah, just come down off the cross, save yourself. Oh yeah, and don't forget about me. It's all about me, you know. It's my comfort, my privilege, my blessing, me, me, me. And then the other guy says, stop it. You're here because you deserve to be here just like I deserve to be here. We are getting what is justly deserved to us. And then he turns and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. I may not die today, but I may meet a person along the way who I have offended a long time ago. And I may need to say I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And then I move along and then I meet a person who I owe money to because he did some work for me and I thought, wow, well, he hasn't given me a bill so I'll just forget it. And then you look at him and say, you know something? I still owe you for that. Let me pay that off. The priority is, is to understand repentance is not a once and for all event. Repentance is a daily coming to life of the new. Repentance is making Jesus not someone you sympathize with, but someone you obey. someone you surrender to. He doesn't want your sympathy. He wants your obedience. He wants your dedication. He wants your all. What is your priority today? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, your mercy and for your grace. Thank you for confronting us in such a clear way with your purposes. 
Help us under the guidance and the power of your spirit uh, to think clearly about what it is that should have priority in our lives and help us to bring the awareness of following Jesus and obeying Jesus and being repentant uh, clearly to the foreground. We pray that we may not just simply think about it on a Sunday morning, but that it may be part of our constant thought and part of our constant discipline. So hear our prayer and fill us, we humbly ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.